Please then again tonight to the book of Esther, chapter 3. Esther, Job, Psalms, you'll find it there. Esther, chapter 3. And I want to just then encapsulate just in a few words what I said this morning in part one of this message. Uh, this was during the reign of King Ahasuerus, uh, the king of Persia. And Persia was a massive empire in those days, all the way from Ethiopia, North Africa to India, and all of the Mediterranean, Middle Eastern countries in between. And uh, the Persians had liberated the Jews from the Babylonian captivity, and many, of course, after that went back to their homeland, but many did not. Many stayed on in Persia and assimilated within society. And by the time we come to this book, it's reckoned they're here about 150 years. And uh, so they're well assimilated into society, doing their best to honor God as they know God, of course, in the Judaistic religion, but also obeying the laws of the land and were quite comfortable there. And then we saw how that uh, King Ahasuerus, in a fit of pique and temper, uh, because his wife would not obey him, how that he banished her from his sight, never to appear before him again. And then how he went off to war against Greece and uh, suffered a humiliating defeat at the hand of the Greeks and the Spartans and uh, come back again to his own country, smarting under the defeat, pretty miserable with himself and missing his queen Vashti at that point and his courtiers not wanting to be mad and upset because they knew how dangerous he was when he was in that position, they wanted to humor him. And so they said, here's what to do, O king. We want you to send out throughout a whole empire and gather up the most beautiful woman you can find. And uh, we'll bring them to you, and there'll be a bit of a, a beauty contest. Of course, you will be the only judge in this contest, and whoever wins the contest, well, they will be queen in place of Vashti. And that pleased the king, and he sent out all of his... Uh, assistance to find the most beautiful woman in the empire. And you can imagine from Africa to India and everywhere in between, that would be a lot of beautiful women. Uh, but what he did not know in the providence of God, in other words, God working out his own plans and purposes behind the scenes, that the one who would be his queen actually was right there in his own city. This was a young orphan Jewess named Esther. And Esther had got there through Mordecai, her older cousin, uh, he in turn had, uh, his uncle and his aunt had died and left his beautiful young little cousin as an orphan. And this older man, Mordecai, he took her under his wing and brought her up as his own daughter, would bring up his own daughter, uh, even though it was his young cousin. And Mordecai was a Jew, Esther was a Jewess, and Mordecai somehow or other had become part of the civil service, could we say, and had a, a rank in the civil service within the courts of the king. And so at that time then, however it happened, we're not sure, but this young, beautiful Jewess, uh, Esther, then she got to be part of this beauty pageant uh, to come before the king. And we know we read this morning how that she won that contest hands down. Because when he saw her absolute beauty, uh, he was smitten and decided that she would be the one to be queen in Vashti's uh, stead. And then, after she had become queen, at some point, and before we join the story here in chapter 3, 
uh, Mordecai discovered a plot, an assassination plot, by two of his uh, high-ranking officials in the palace. And so he told Esther the queen to tell the king Ahasuerus, which she did. And she said about this plot and that her, her that not her, but Mordecai uh, had mentioned this to her to say to the king. And she made sure that she mentioned Mordecai's name. So the queen, king was very, very pleased at that and uh, made inquiries. And sure enough, it was true. And he hung these two uh, so-called assassins. And then he made sure that it was written in the chronicles of the kings of Persia. Because every detail, every detail of his reign would be written in the chronicles of the kings of Persia, along with his father's chronicles and his grandfather's chronicles, Darius and Cyrus. So they would do that in those days. So she made sure, the queen, that that would be written in the chronicles. Little did any of them know, either the king or Esther or Mordecai, how important that was in the great scheme of God throughout the rest of this book. And so as we join now chapter 3, now Esther has been queen for about five years. And uh, a new person comes upon the scene here in chapter 3, this character called Haman. So chapter 3 verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set him his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now, you may wonder why he did not advance and promote Mordecai. Well, the reason is because it was in the providence of God. He should have, but it was something he overlooked. Again, not a mistake. It wasn't his part, but not in God's part because God had this all planned. So, he appoints this Haman, who, by the way, happened to be, and we'll see in a moment or two, an extremely wealthy man. I'm talking serious wealth here. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he promoted him. How many of you know that high-ranking kings, queens, politicians, president, prime ministers, they love the super rich to come alongside? It makes them all look very, very good. And so he appoints this Haman. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. So this is the position of number two in the kingdom. Not only that, that now by law, by the king's writ, that everywhere he went, that everybody who was in his line of sight would have to bow and pay homage. Actually, it tells a little bit later on, they had to tremble in his sight. Literally tremble, whether they felt frightened or not, they still had to tremble. Now, this man was filled with pride. I mean, this man was such a proud, as you'll see this in a moment or two. So, that was the scene. However, it says, But Mordecai would not buy or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were, with, who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them, and they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now up to now he had hidden this, uh, and he had good reason to hide it because of anti-Semitism. 
But now he is, he's had to come clean with this because this is why I'm not bowing down to this man. This is why I'm not paying homage because I will only bow before Almighty God. I'll only pay homage to the true and the living God, not to this one who wants to be a God. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now, here is an anti-Semite. And here he is in a position of great power and authority. And he is going to do his level best to destroy every Jew in the Medo-Persian Empire. Every single one of them. Not just Mordecai, but all of them. This is not the first anti-Semite to try this, by the way. Remember I told you this morning that this setting is in Iran-Iraq, in that area, geographically. The current president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, if that's the right way to pronounce it, he is a Jew-hater. He absolutely despises the Jews and has said that he wants them all to disappear of the face of the earth. So after all these thousands of years, we still have anti-Semites in positions of great power. He's about to, very, very close to having nuclear power, hence probably nuclear warheads. Guess what do you think he wants to do with them? And so, here's this Haman. And in the first month, which is in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, P-U-R, pur, that is the lot. Casting lots to make decisions was a big thing in ancient days, even into the New Testament, by the way. And Ahasuerus, in the year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, he wants to destroy all of the Jews. And he wants to choose a month and a day to do it. So he calls all of his probably astrologers and prognosticators and sages and wise men all around him and says, look, superstitious as they were, look, we have got to cast some lots for this. This is an important deal I'm doing here. But little did he know that Almighty God, the ruler of the universe, was going to use this against him. Because even though he was going to cast the lot, God was going to use this for his glory. In Proverbs 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. <laughs> and so, they cast the lot, and would you believe they cast it on the first month of the year, and would you believe it fell on the 13th day of the last month of the year, the 12th month? <laughs> that's, a long, that's a long time to go, isn't it? But they'd cast the lot. They made their incantations. They cast the lot. The gods would be pleased with them that the lot has fell on that day. As far as they're thinking, well, our God was pleased because he organized or engineered it. The, the dice would fall on that day. See, this is the providence of God, isn't it? 
So that would give then God's plans and Mordecai, as we'll see in a moment or two, that would give time for God's plans to unfold. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Notice he said there is a certain people. He didn't say there were Jews, by the way. He just says a certain people. Their laws are different from all other peoples. And they do not keep the king's laws. Well, he was right and he was wrong. Their laws, their laws certainly were different because they obeyed God's laws. But they also kept the laws of the country they were in because they wanted to be good, upstanding citizens, except unless it cut across the law of God. Do you remember Daniel? Whenever the decree was signed, what did he do? That nobody could pray or ask any petition of the king. He went into his house and he prayed three times a day as he did a four time because that was against God's law. And so here's what he's telling the king. Hey, there's a certain people among all the provinces and they have different laws than us and they do not obey your laws. Now, King Ahasuerus has said this morning had a massive ego. All of his courtiers and all of his privy counselors, they played into his massive ego. They knew how to get to this man. All you had to do was play to his ego and he'd fall for it. Well, Haman's doing the same thing here. He says, they're not keeping your laws, king. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. 10,000 talents of silver was a massive amount of money. You're going in here into millions, if it was modern day, millions upon millions upon millions. It was a massive amount. So he must have been an extremely wealthy man. So he says, listen, O king, leave this to me. I'll pay for the whole thing. Now, of course, that would be good news to the king because his treasuries are depleted fighting the Greeks and having lost that war and his, his navies and his armies and all the rest of it. So that would be good news. In fact, you don't even have to get any armies involved. I'll stir up the people. I'll even get, well, we've seen a minute how he's going to plan this. And actually, even that was in the providence of God because had the king's armies got involved, you'll see in a moment or two, then the Jews really, really would have been in trouble and it would have been very hard for them to escape. But listen to it. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamedadath, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. Now listen. Let me just back up just a little bit here because this is important. Mordecai and Haman had history. Not personally, but in their backgrounds, there was history here. Notice how a couple of times it said that he was uh, from the king Agag. Agag was an Amalekite king in the days of Samuel the prophet. The Amalekites were the wickedest people on earth. And whenever the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, to come into the promised land, they actually ambushed them and wouldn't give them a route through. And God was very, very angry with them. And God promised that one day he would destroy them from the face of the earth. And when you come into 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul, 
who, by the way, like Mordecai, was from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul's father was Kish. And Mordecai was from the family or the tribe from Kish. Right? So, King Saul, Samuel prophesied to him and told him to go after the Malachites and wipe them out of the face of even their animals. There would be no trace left of them. And he went out with his army and he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Because what he did do, he spared King Agag the Amalekite and he spared even some of the animals. And of course his soldiers did the same. And Samuel comes to him and said, because you have done this. And he soundly rebuked him. And from that moment, God was finished with him from being king over Israel. And Samuel took a sword and he slew Agag with the sword in pieces. Now, some of those Amalekites were spared. They had escaped and got away. And here they're coming back to hunt the people of God again. And so these two, knowing their histories, imagine here's Haman, and as soon as he hears Mordecai's a Jew, the bristles must have went up in the back of his neck. A Jew? These people who wanted to destroy my people? These people who slew my king way back then? And Mordecai, knowing Haman was from King Agag, knowing that it should have been wiped out, knowing these were her mortal enemies, you can see there's tension between these two. That's one of the reasons why he wouldn't bow down before him. So you got that in your mind, right? So it says, verse 12, Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, that's to the princes and governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. You know that the kings had a, a, an embossed uh, thing on their ring and so they would press that into the, into the melting wax to seal. And when people saw that, they knew that was the king's, that, that was the king's word. And the letters were sent by couriers into all of the king's provinces. Note this, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. This was Haman's final solution to the Jewish question. In the 1940s, Hitler rose up, and he too had a final solution. But it didn't work either, did it? Actually, it almost did. Out of the 8 million Jews that lived in Europe, 6 million were slaughtered and burned in gas. But Hitler's long gone, isn't he? Blew his brains out in the bunker in Berlin when the Russians were surrounding him. You wouldn't call your dog Hitler, sure you wouldn't. And yet the Jewish state today strong and vibrant and militarily extremely powerful. So everyone, whether it's the modern president of Iran 
or whether it was Haman or whether it was Hitler, everyone, and whether it was the pharaohs or whether it was King Nasser of Egypt, everyone has put their hand out against Israel has ended up a defeated foe. And this guy's going to find the same fate too. So that's the decree that went out. And to plunder their possessions. Because to the victor goes the spoils. That was the law. If your enemy, if you killed your enemy, whatever he had was yours. To the victor went the spoils. And that was in the decree. See what he was doing here? He was going to stir up the people against the Jews with the idea, well, if you kill them, what you get will be yours. And you can take your, their money and you can take their housing and you can take their goods. You can take everything. You know, you see, the Nazis did this in the last war, didn't they? You know, they, they took the, the, the art of the Jews and they took their silver and their gold and they herded them into ghettos. And even those who hid some gold and silver, when they herded them onto the cattle trucks to take them, to gas them, they stole even that off them. They took the very glasses and the very false teeth and they cut the very hair off them to fill pillowcases. I mean, they stripped them, everything off them. And even their corpses, they pulled the gold teeth out of their corpses to melt it down. And so, a copy of the document was to be issued as law to every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel, in other words, in the capital here, and even in the palace. And so the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed or in confusion. Can you believe that this king, not even knowing who these people were, has just signed the death warrant for probably hundreds of thousands of them throughout his empire. And he doesn't even know who they are. And even if he had known, he wouldn't have cared. Wouldn't have cost him a thought. And that's how cruel and callous and heartless this man was. You know, I watched a program recently about the war and how that Stalin, some of his top officials came and said the Tartars, this is in the Ukraine, the Crimea era, they're, 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 they have betrayed you. So we need to get rid of them. He just signed a piece of paper just, and just looked out the window just as if he was signing a prescription of your doctor. It didn't mean a thing to him that people would be slaughtered or deported. It didn't mean anything to Stalin. It didn't mean anything to this man either. He didn't know who they were. And then they sat down and had a drink. This man loves the drink. Did you notice that in the many parties they've had so far? He loves to drink, this man. Not very good in the leader, is it? And then it says, chapter 4, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing and many laying sackcloth and ashes. Now you can imagine the reason for it. They know a date has been set for their destruction. And so Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. 
And Esther called Hittach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. Evidently, she didn't know. Now, she's been queen for five years, but probably the king did not confide in any of the things regarding uh, the political situation in his kingdom. That was men talk. And he had lots of advisors. So she probably didn't even know what was going on. She would be confined to her quarters. And by the way, at this time, she hasn't been before him for 30 days for a whole month. She had no idea what's going on here. But she knows something's wrong with Mordecai. He's in sackcloth and ashes, and he won't take them off. So she said to her assistant, you find out what's happened. So Hattach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her that he might might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hittites returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. To make absolutely sure that she knew the seriousness of the situation, he sent her a copy of the command, the decree, so that she could read for herself. This wouldn't be hearsay. wouldn't be a rumor. She would see in black and white. So... She has been queen now for five years. She's been pretty comfortable in this palace. Nothing untoward has happened to her so far. So she needs to be shaken up. Something needs to happen here. Verse 10, Then Esther spoke to Hattach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law to put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Say, was she frightened? She bet she was. She had lived long enough around this king to know how callous and cruel he could be. For anybody just to walk in there, even her, she remembered what had happened to Vashti. And she's a young woman, so she, she obviously is frightened. This is the king's command. This is the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be broken. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do you think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews? For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And then these immortal words, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I think at that moment, I think Mordecai realized for the first time, Ah, God, this is why I stayed behind in Persia. This is why I took this young woman into my home. This is why 
you have promoted me to the king's gate. This is why she won the beauty contest, so that she could be queen. God, this is your providence. Your hand has been this all along. This is the reason why Esther's there. Who knows, but you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And suddenly, all those pieces of his past life are all fitting into place. And he realizes God's at work here. The hand of God's in this. And he was absolutely right. So, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. And my maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. There's been feasting in every chapter of this book to now, and now there's fasting. There's time for feasting, but there's a time for fasting. Times is difficult. So she fasted. And her conclusion was, I'm going to go before the king. And if it cost me my life, so be it. I'll do it. That took a lot of courage. A lot of guts. She hadn't been before the king for 30 days. Why was that? Had the novelty worn off him? I can imagine her wondering, did I say something to offend him? He's so moody, this man, anyway. I mean, the least little thing can set him off. He hasn't called for me for 30 days. And I know that all the other concubines, I mean, he's not, he's not going to bed at night alone. Not this king. So you can imagine all these thoughts are going through her mind. So she's got to face the issue here. And the issue was that her people are going to die if she doesn't do anything. The whole... The whole nation's future has now come to her. That's pressure, isn't it? Can you imagine the future of a whole nation is resting on you and you alone? She says, well, I'm going to go, but if I perish, so be it, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes Now she's going to go before the king. So she's going to look as regal and as beautiful as she possibly can be. This may be the last time ever she'll see this king. But she's going to make sure <laughs> that it's not going to be anything she's going to do that's going to put him off. She's going to do everything in her power to look as beautiful and as regal as she possibly can be. So she puts on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. Now put yourself in her shoes. This was a very, very long palace, by the way. Something over 300 feet long. It's long. And he's sitting at the other end in his great beautiful golden throne and her comes in between all these great marble pillars 
dressed in her royal robes. And I bet you underneath those robes, I bet you her wee wee legs are shaking, her wee knees are knocking. Because this is crunch time. This is life and death time. All she has to do, go in and he's in a bad mood. She's dead. So she goes in and she just goes and she just stops and she just stands there. wonder how long she stood. A few seconds, a minute. wonder what she prayed at that time. You can be sure she prayed. She's fasted and prayed for three days. She's put herself into God's hands. Does she know what she's going to say? I'm sure she's thought of a lot of things to say. But you know, God's going to put words in her mouth here. God's going to make sure she says all the right things. And so, she stood facing the entrance of the house. Verse 2 of chapter 5. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther his golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? (laughs) What a sigh of relief when he said those words, Queen Esther. Because she knew she was in favor again here. What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Now this is superbly. I mean, he wasn't going to give anybody half of his kingdom, but this is the way they did in those days. King Herod did it when Herodias' daughter danced before him. And he was so pleased. He said, what do you want? I'll give it to you up to half the kingdom. He says, I want John the Baptist's head in a platter. He walked into a trap that she had set for him. What do you want? Up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, lend that the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Ah. So she had a banquet already prepared. So she's acting in faith. She has a plan. It better work when she walks in that door. And it does work because God's in it. Amen? Then the king said, Never one to turn down a party, this man. Bring Haman quickly. And I, I've underlined this in my Bible. I like this here. That he may do as Esther has said. <laughs> if he knew she was a Jew. <laughs> but the king didn't know at this point and Haman didn't know this point either so that he may do as Esther has said so the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared at the banquet of wine the king said to Esther what is your petition it shall be granted you what is your request up the half the kingdom it shall be done and Esther answered and said my petition and request is this If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. (laughs) That's a bit strange. 
Here she is. It's her golden opportunity. The king has already said twice to her, whatever you want, Esther, shall be yours. Just name it, and it's yours. You say, why did she procrastinate? See, I don't think that this is procrastination her point out of fear or anything. I think she fully believes God is in control of this. God's working something here. So this is not procrastination. This is providence at work here. You'll see in a moment, it's a good job she said what she said. Listen, if you don't mind, I want to have a big banquet tomorrow. And if you don't mind, I'd love you, O king, and your friend Haman to come to the banquet tomorrow. Again, loves a party, this man. So for sure, he's up for it. Now she's judged his mood. She's seen how pleased he is. And now he's curious. Has anybody ever said to you, listen, rang you up and says, listen, could you meet me tomorrow at one o'clock for coffee? I need to ask you something. And all day long you're thinking, what in the world don't ask me? Huh? I mean, your natural curiosity. Could it be this? Could it be that? Could it be the other? No, I don't think it could be that. But maybe it could be that. No, I'm not sure. Maybe it's this. And you, get, you toss and turn on your head all day long. Wonder, I wish they had told me. Because now I'm anxious. I don't know what this is going to be. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it negative? Is it positive? So she has the king on tender hooks. She's using her brain here too. All right? So, Esther said, I'm making another banquet tomorrow. Would you like to come? So Haman went out on that day joyful and with a glad heart. <clears throat> this man is so proud. He's, this is happy days for him. I mean, he's got a private audience, a private party with the king and queen of Persia, no less. Not only that, she's inviting him to the party again tomorrow, just the three of them. I mean, what could be better than that? So you can see, happy days for him. He's joyful. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. <laughs> Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. He probably thought to himself, oh, I'm really, really mad at that old Mordecai, that old Jew. But in 11 months' time, He'll not be here. There'll be none of them here. That's what he's thinking. So he goes home to his wife. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children. He had ten sons, by the way. Everything in which the king had promoted him and how he advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come with the king to the banquet that she has prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited along with, by her along with the king. He's even put himself before the king here. I'm invited. Well, by the way, the king's invited too. But I'm invited. She's invited me. You can see this man swelling up like a toad with pride. But then he says, Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
Now, can you believe this man? If, and he had, if Ahasuerus had a massive eagle, this man's got a very fragile eagle. The whole kingdom bows and quakes before him. He's number two to the king. He has riches untold, and one little Jew will not bow down before him, and he can't stick it. He can't stand it. It's eating him up. How insecure is that? Isn't it? He's very, very fragile. His ego's very, very fragile. He's so insecure, this man. One writer, I forget which one, I've been reading, said that, if I can get this right, talking about us seeking the approval of men. If we live for the approval of men, how are we going to live with the disapproval of men? And that's true, isn't it? If we have to always, always have the approval of men, what are you going to do if they disapprove? How are you going to handle that? This man always had to have the approval of everybody around him. And here's one person shows his disapproval and he can't stand it. It's eating him up. So he tells his wife. Verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged in it, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Imagine being married to that wife. Huh? What are you talking about, she said to him. Why don't you just go out there and build a gallows 75 feet high, make them big, and get that Jew hung, get it over with. Don't wait 11 months. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. He's up all night building the gallows, couldn't sleep, had to get the job done. At first light, he says, I'm going to go to the king, I'm going to get his permission, I'm going to hang that Jew. By the way, when it says gallows here, don't think of gallows as, you know, like a trap door and somebody with a rope around their neck. Gallows here was a construction made, but they impaled the victim on a pole and then pulled the pole up the gallows for everybody to see. That's what Persians did. Later on, the Romans would nail people to poles, make a cross of it. But then, while he couldn't sleep and he's building the gallows, would you believe it? The same night, the king couldn't sleep either. That night, chapter 6, that night, notice it says that night, that very night, of all the nights the king couldn't sleep. And I bet you after the banquet of wine, I'm sure any other night he'd been sleeping, he'd been snoring like a hog. But that night he couldn't sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles that they were to read before the king. Imagine, he decided he'd read a book. Now, not a book as we know, a book, a scroll. And of all things, it would be about his kingdom. Of course, that would suit his massive ego, wouldn't it? It must be pretty boring as well. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever been to Trinity College Dublin, particularly if you stood in the old library. It's massive. Anybody ever stood in it? Anybody ever seen that? 
just selling me. You need to go down to Dublin, go into Trinity College Dublin, see this. Get a bit of culture into you. Come on. It's worth a 100-mile trip to see this. And see the Book of Kells while you're at it as well. All right? No, I don't work for the Irish Tourist Board. Don't think that. But when you go in there, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of books just in that one library. By the way, in all of their libraries, they've got almost, they've got almost 5 million books. Trinity College Dublin. So I can imagine that the scrolls of the Chronicles of the Kings of Persia, I'd imagine it be a massive big room with masses and masses of scrolls because they put everything down there that happened in all the provinces. 127 provinces, that's going to call for a lot of scrolls. And I can imagine when he sent his servant for one to read, he'd go to the librarian and says, the king wants some scrolls to read. Which ones does he want? I don't know, he never said. Just give me some scrolls. You'll probably be bored after I read two of them. He'll fall asleep and that'll do it. So just get any scrolls. And I can imagine the librarian looking at all these hundreds of thousands of scrolls that we piled up and thinking, ah, what am I going to do? So he'd just go over and he'd just take maybe half a dozen of them out and say, here, take that to the king. <laughs> but see the providence of God in all of this. And they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Asherah. So remember that situation where Esther got the king to put it into the book? Out of all those probably hundreds of thousands of scrolls in the library, this man picks out this one. And he reads it to the king that night that he couldn't sleep. And lo and behold, he found out about, ah, Mordecai, yeah, I remember that now. Yeah, it's coming back. See, yes, we've written this in the book. So he said, then the king said, what honor or dignity has bestowed upon Mordecai for this? Because protocol would have been in those days that if somebody did a great favor to the king, especially if they saved his life, he would be handsomely rewarded and greatly promoted. The king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. This is highly, highly unusual. So the king said, who is in the court? So he's going to do something about this right now. He's going to put it right, right now. But this king always needs advisors. He couldn't make any, any, he couldn't make any decision on his own. We found that out about him. He had advisors. He had, he had a bunch of bad advisors too. So he says, who is in the court? Now this is, this is early, early morning. Probably at first light this is happening because they couldn't sleep all night. So who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had preferred for him. He was there at first light. He was going to be first in the queue. If the king had a busy day that day, he was going to make sure I'm going to get in there first and get this deed done. <laughs> the king's servant said unto him Haman is there standing in the court the king says let him come in so Haman came in and the king asked him what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor <laughs> this, this really is funny isn't it now Haman thought in his heart whom would the king delight to honor more than me now here is that pride, Jeremy, you know, is just oozing out of every pore. He just couldn't even think of anybody more deserving than him. 
He's just standing there and saying, this is wonderful. This just can't get any better for me. That's what he's thinking. I've had a party with the king and queen. I've been invited to one again today. And now I'm going to hang old Mordecai. And now the king's saying he wants to honor me. This, this was amazing for him, wasn't it? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn. Boy, he could see himself in that, couldn't he? And a horse on which the king has ridden, and a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, whoever he might be. Maybe that was number three. That he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? There he's standing there, his heart is bursting with pride. And as old Matthew Henry, I think, was it said that pride is the deceiver of the pride. Pride is the deceiver of the pride. His heart has deceived him. And so he's standing there broadly smiling, waiting for the king just to let on him all this great honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing be undone of all that you have spoken. <laughs> isn't that funny, isn't it? You know what that sound is? That's Haman's jaw hitting the marble floor. <laughs> if he was a cartoon character at this point, his eyes would be sitting out on stocks. The hair of his head would be out, sticking up like a hedgehog. You think he is plugged into the national grid. I mean, this is sheer shock. And he's standing there. And he has to keep his composure. But inside he must be absolutely shell-shocked with this. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <clears throat> that must have galled him. And I can imagine wee Mordecai sitting on that horse, looking down and just smiling. Just smiling, saying, Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. This is wonderful. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. Did you notice he didn't swell up with pride? Did you notice he just went back to his ordinary everyday job? But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zerash and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. What a miserable bunch of comforters, as Job would say, they were. You've got friends, I guess, who needs enemies. Anyway, while they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So he's running late now. If ever he felt less like going to a banquet, it's this one. <laughs> he knows he's have to, going to have to sit here and smile and, and pretend he's enjoying himself, but inside he's seething with anger and rage at what has happened. And so the king and Haman went to dine 
So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Now here's Esther's moment. She's fasted and prayed for three days. She's been very smart and clever and faithful the day before. But here's the moment. So she said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, Note this, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. That's what the decree, the exact words of the decree. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. Although the enemy, the one who did this, could never compensate for the king's loss. King, this is going to cause you loss. In other words, what she's saying, he's reading between the lines, what you thought was gain is going to be lost because these people are good citizens. They, they, they supply the, much of the wealth of this nation by their work ethic and all the rest of it. It's going to be a big, big loss if this happens. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Do you think that he had forgotten or not. Uh, but that decree that he had allowed Haman to sign and the money that he had been promised, well, maybe he did because that was two months ago. A lot of happens two months in a, in a mighty empire. And I mean, this man just signed things at a whim, so it didn't mean anything to him, so maybe he did forget. But Esther, in a, in a nice, tactful way, is reminding him so who is this that would dare presume such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is that wicked Haman. And I can imagine you're pointing right at him. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Why, his day has just gone from bad to worse, isn't it? I mean, in just a short space of a few hours, he got up that morning, I mean, everything was wonderful. He got the king's full attention. He's going to kill Mordecai. He was going to be honored with great honor. And look at him now. He's terrified. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. Boy, I tell you, he is mad now. He's livid. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. I mean, he just saw his face. That was enough. And he had seen that look many times before. He had been around the king long enough to know what that look meant. That meant death. His death. Now, he wasn't supposed to be in with the queen alone. Only the eunuchs could be in with the queen alone when the king wasn't there. But he didn't care anymore. I mean, this is his last ditch attempt. So he stays. When the king returned from the palace garden to the sorry, when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. So he's pleading for his very life, and he, whether he tripped or whether just in, in his emotional state, he just flung himself, probably to mean at her feet, and he landed on top of her in the couch. And just by that, the king walks in. 
And then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? <laughs> and as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Those who were going to be executed was not allowed to look upon the king and he certainly didn't want to look upon their face. And those servants knew exactly what the king was going to do and so they just jumped on him, covered his face. Now Harbonah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. And so the king said, Hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Ha! Huh. Do you see the hand of God through all of that? See what I talk about when I say providence? See, if we're in God's hands, He works behind the scenes for our deliverance. We don't have to know what's going on. We just know to trust Him. So Haman's gone. In 24 hours, he's gone. But, and it's a big but, but, what time have I got? How long have I been speaking? Somebody tell me. So how long have I been speaking? It just seems like it, does it? So how long have I been speaking? Anybody can tell me? Because I need to know when to finish quick. All right, so you're enjoying it that much, you never even noticed. That's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> but there's one major problem. The decree has been signed. The queen, king's signature was upon it for their destruction on the 13th day of the 12th month, and it could not be revoked because it was the law of the Medes and the Persians which could not be altered. So they're in trouble yet. Their main protagonist is gone, but they're in trouble yet. Come the 13th of the 12th month, they're going to be attacked and they're going to be killed. So on that day, King Ahasuerus gave, the queen, gave queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to the victor goes the spoils. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So now everything's out in the open. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the whole house of Haman. And Mordecai now, having the king's ring, is now in the position of Haman. In other words, he's number two in the whole empire. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had revised, devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. So he'd gone in again, by the way. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all of the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? And she's weeping and she's crying. But she's asking the king to do something that even he can't do. Alter the law of the Medes and the Persians. Then King Ahasuerus said to the Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, 
I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, Sivan, on the 23rd day it was written, so they have nine months to go, to D-Day. According to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from into Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in his own script, to every people in their own language, to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. They'd have these horses uh, placed throughout the kingdom to, to get the king's word out and they would hundreds of them and so they would ride for so many hours then they would jump off get another one ride for so many hours until they got the word out fast so this is what's happening here and by these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city note this to gather together and protect their lives to destroy to kill to annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them both the little children and women and to plunder their possessions so he could not revoke his first word but he says what I'll do is I'll give you permission that if anybody attacks you you can attack them now remember whenever Haman thought this scheme up he didn't include the king's armies had he had done that then the king couldn't have let them attack his own armies. And again, that was a mistake on Haman's part, but it was in the providence of God, wasn't it? So, to attack them and to plunder their possessions to the victor goes the spoils, on one day in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, so the same day, a copy of the document was to be issued by the, as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The courtiers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and city wherever the king's command a decree came the Jews had joined gladness a feast and a holiday then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. This word had gone out, this tremendous story about Haman and all the rest of it spread like wildfire throughout the whole provinces and fear came upon the people to say, we can't mess with these people. God is, their God has delivered them. We can't mess with their God. Now, there were still some that was going to mess with them, by the way. There were still some diehards who really hated them that much. Now, we better go fast. Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, that no one could withstand them, because fear of, the, of them fell upon all the people. 
And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work, helped the Jews because of the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Then the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and lists some of those who were destroyed, uh, the ten sons of Haman and the sons of Hamethadad, the enemy of the Jews. They killed, but they, note this, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. In fact, it says that several times in this chapter, which we're not going to read all because of time now, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. It was the right to do it. It was law. They could have done it, but they didn't do it. And what they were saying to everybody else, hey, listen, we are just protecting ourselves. We're not doing it for plunder. We're not doing it for personal gain. We're just protecting ourselves. And that's all the land of Israel is doing today, just protecting themselves. In 10 years, they have been bombarded with 12,000 Kasham rockets in 10 years. Day and daily it goes on. And once they even make one retaliation, the whole world is breathing down their neck. And all they're doing is protecting themselves because they want to live in the land that God gave them. And so, for the sake of time, now we run out of time. For the sake of time, 500 was killed in the city. And then the next day, when the king hears the report, he says to Esther, anything else you want? She says, give me permission to go out the next day. There's obviously some scragglers who hated them still about. Next day, there was 300 killed. And in all the provinces, it tells us there were 75,000 of their enemies were killed. He'd obviously come against them, only they were defeated. And then there was great rejoicing and feasting and Mordecai and Esther, they initiated a feast time. And it was called Purim, P-U-R-I-M, after Pur, which was the casting of the lot. So they issued this feast to happen on the 14th and the 15th day of a certain month. It falls about March time in our calendar. After two and a half thousand years, the Feast of Purim is still held by Jews all over the world. It's not one of the five major feasts that God commanded in the Bible. It's a minor one, but it's an important one to them, and they love it. It's a time of giving of gifts and presents, a time of rejoicing. And whenever they meet in the synagogue, and the scroll of Esther is read out to tell you the story I've just read this past, this Lord's Day, when it's read out, they get all the children, every time the name of Haman is mentioned in it, that they get all the children to make as much noise as they can. Do you remember years ago, when we used to go to football match years ago, you had this thing like, like you swung it around your head and it made this cracking noise. Remember those things? I forget what you call them. Well, they have those and they have cymbals and they have saucepan lids or whistles or anything that makes a noise. And every time the name of Haman's mentioned, all the kids jump up and they rattle and they shout and they stump their feet every time Haman's name is mentioned. And it's a visual reminder to this day of the great deliverance that God gave the Jews in the reign of King Ahasuerus. And he goes on to tell us then in chapter 10, the last few verses, 
that King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and all the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to the king Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Now let me just finish one verse and then we'll go. This wonderful story of Esther, if it tells you anything, and I keep using the word, it tells us of the providence of God. Of God's overriding plans and purposes in our lives. Listen to what King David said. He said this in Psalm 139, verse 16. He said, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Before we were even born, God had a plan and a purpose for every one of your lives, without exception. Not everybody's going to walk in that plan and purpose because many will reject God and his plans. But thank God we have found him and we have found his purpose for our lives. Amen? That's the providence of God. He drew us by many ways. That's why we've all got a different testimony because he was shaping our lives. Even before we were born, he had a plan for us to walk in. Amen? So there is the wonderful story of Esther that beautiful young orphan Jewish lady who became the queen of Persia and saved her nation from destruction. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We bless you, Lord, that we can see your hand throughout all of these events in history. And Lord, that encourages us tonight to know that even right now in the 21st century, Right this very night, your plans for us are good and not for evil to give us a hope and a future. And so we bless you and we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you for your...